Be seated. Thank you, Julia. So the first time I saw my wife was in November of 2012. It was your typical wet, drizzly fall organ night. And I was at Multnomah University getting ready for a basketball game. You see, being a small Christian university in Portland, uh, these basketball games, I had the privilege of getting to play on the team, but you didn't see many people in the stands. It was typically just family. Yet, that night, in this small crowd of people, someone stood out. You see, if you're a pretty girl at a Multnomah game, you stand out like a sore thumb. So at some point during the game, I'm scanning the crowd, you know, it's their little water break action, and lo and behold, I see a gift from God <laughs> just placed a few rows up, and I'm literally talking to one of my buddies, I'm like, dude, do you know who that girl is? Like, she was super cute, so I was like, okay, you know, maybe I'll go talk to her after the game, but like any guy out there, the game came, the game went, and I was like, okay, and I just left, you know? I was like, gift of God has gone away forever. <laughs> Fast forward almost one year, and again, by the grace of God, maybe the sovereignty of God and his divine plan, Miss Anna Botsford started attending Multnomah University. And so like any guy, you know, I start kind of working my magic, doing a little flirting here and there, memorizing her schedule so that, you know, I just happen to be everywhere she is. It's weird how that works. And guys, it worked, okay? It worked. And so over time, we started dating. Um, and like any relationship, typically after a while of dating, um, you kind of start talking about the beginning stages of your relationship. You know, and you're like, oh, do you remember when I did this? And like all the Twitter patient stage and the flirtation, and you're like trying to just, you know, relive those days. And so I was like, I'm going to do this. I'm going to relive these glory days. And so I start talking to her about the first time I ever saw her, which again was that fall drizzly night in November of 2012. And I happened to have a really good game that night, had almost 30 points, sat just a few minutes the whole game, you know, so I'm like, okay, like, I'm kind of boasting to myself, being like, well, like, you probably remember me because, like, I was the team, you know, so... <laughs> <coughs> so I go through this whole story, you know, just like boasting myself. And she, like, starts to get a smirk at the end of, like, me asking her this question, like, do you remember me? And a little, a little cute smirk, she's like, I didn't even know you were there. <laughs> oh, okay. You see, but it was in that moment, it was in that moment of boasting that it dawned on me. It wasn't even about me. You see, it was about somebody else. This morning, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians 1, 18 through 31, just as Julia read. And we're going to be looking at two questions that the text poses. Question number one, who is wise? We're going to be looking at verses 18 through 25. And then secondly, we're going to be looking at the question of who do you think that you are? In 26 through 31. 
Uh, Let's pray once again prior to jumping into the text. Lord God, we praise you for who you are. And Lord, I pray that you open this text to our eyes this morning, Lord, that we may see you afresh, that we may see you new. And open your scripture to us, God. Allow me to step aside that they may see your son, Jesus, in all his glory. In your name, amen. So question number one, who is wise? Let's read 18 through 25. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. See, in this first section, Paul's really setting up a contrast between wisdom of the world and wisdom of God. And we're going to be addressing that question of of who is wise? Who ought we to follow when it comes to wisdom? So wisdom according to the world. We see in verse 20 that Paul starts to address that very question to the Corinthians. Um, As Josh talked about last week, setting up um, our series, the Corinthians were people that loved knowledge. They were all about philosophy and just thinking and debating. And so he goes right to where they're at and he says, where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? And so again, for them in that day and age, the wise, these were the philosophers And he's speaking specifically to the Greeks in this moment, saying, where where are these philosophers that you're speaking of? For the scribes. He's speaking specifically of the teachers of the law. So he's looking directly to the Jews and saying, where are these people? And lastly, he speaks of the debaters, which really is kind of generalized of Corinth overall, of these great orators of the day. People would go to see public speakers just proclaim these, these truths, Or are they? You see, if these people are true, what do the wise pursue? That's kind of what he starts getting at. He's saying, if these are the wise people, then what ultimately are they pursuing? In verse 23 or 24, he says, For the Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. So what is it that these wise people are proclaiming? What is it that these wise people of the world are pursuing? For the Jews, he says, they demand signs. Yet Christ is a stumbling block. So what are these, these signs that they are demanding? We have to realize that for the Jews, when they thought of Messiah, 
They thought of somebody that was going to come in in a political measure or a military force and take back what is theirs, establish Israel to its right place once again. They were looking for a display of power, not death on a cross. You see, the stumbling block for them was the very death of Jesus Christ. Because they go back to their law. In Deuteronomy 21, 23, it says, His body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day, for a hanged man is cursed by God. There was no way that they could fathom and fit this Jesus, this Messiah crucified, into their understanding of God, into their understanding of Scripture. And what about the Gentiles? Where God says that for them the cross is folly. Which again, folly is not a word that I think we often use in our common vernacular. But it's really this idea of just a foolishness. But even more so in this, this kind of folly that he speaks of denotes a madness. Of literally saying, you are insane to think such a thing. That is ludicrous. I can almost get offended and outraged by such a claim. You see, the very thought of wisdom coming through death, and and not only just death, but death on a Roman cross was absolutely ludicrous to the Greeks. Two different commentators, one states, death on a cross was regarded in Roman society as brutal, disgusting, and abhorrent. It was reserved for convicted slaves and convicted terrorists and could never be imposed upon a Roman citizen or even a respectable criminal. It was so offensive that in good taste that crucifixion was never mentioned in polite society except through the use of euphemisms. And one commentator adds, he says, there is no mere human in their own right mind or otherwise that would have ever dreamed up God's scheme for redemption through a crucified Christ, through a crucified Messiah. It is too preposterous, too humiliating for a deity. For the Jews and Greeks, wisdom and that pursuit ultimately came down to knowledge and power and the striving for it. And though we're almost 2,000 years removed from when this was written, when Paul was engaging with the Corinthians. Are we much different? Is our culture much different than that of Corinth? Knowledge and power and the pursuit of it is still at the bedrock of our culture. For some, wisdom is gaining as much knowledge as possible with that desire to add as many letters as they can to the end of their name, MD, PhD, Master, MDiv, whatever that may be. For some, wisdom is doing whatever it takes by any means necessary to rise to the top, not caring how many people you have to bulldoze to get there. For some, wisdom is making a name for yourself, pursuing notoriety, so that you can be someone worthy of recognition. For some, wisdom is political. For some, it's minimizing your carbon footprint. 
And for some, it's really your stock options, your 401k, this pursuit of knowledge, this pursuit of power. Yet at the end of the day, worldly wisdom wants to be as wise as God without God. At the end of the day, you see, this kind of wisdom is ultimately about oneself, my gaining, my knowledge, my power. Yet praise the Lord that he has a different view of power. What is the wisdom according to God? In verse 21, it says, For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Paul begins by stating, worldly wisdom, it's not going to lead you to knowing God. He's right there. The world did not know God through wisdom. In the pursuit of knowledge and power, aside from God, they completely miss God. He lived among them, and they rejected him. Instead, Paul says that you will know wisdom, the creator God's wisdom, by what I preach. And so what is it that Paul preaches? 23 to 25 says, but we preach Christ crucified. We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. What does Paul preach? Christ crucified. He preaches the gospel and preaches it boldly. You see, this is so profound. Paul is saying that the world pursues wisdom and power through gaining knowledge and studying and rhetoric and strength and bulldozing through people. But, but this falls short. Ultimately, this falls short. Wisdom is fleeting. Paul even makes that point when he says in verse 19, For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. He's pulling us back to the Old Testament showing generations before this was proclaimed that the wisdom of the world is actually what is folly. The wisdom of the world is actually what is falling, is decreasing, will at some point be obsolete. Where worldly wisdom leads to destruction, godly wisdom leads to life and life eternal. You saw in verse 21, he says, what we preach to save those who believe. Where one wisdom crumbles, one wisdom leads to life, to salvation. And the profoundness is wisdom for, for God doesn't come in knowledge and power. But wisdom comes through a person. And not only just any person, a person crucified. Wisdom comes through Christ. For Paul says, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. 
for the world, the very thing they are pursuing is found in the very thing they find foolish. This is the great reversal. God completely turns the world on its head. God says, you won't find wisdom and power and knowledge. But rather, he says, you'll find wisdom in my son. You'll find wisdom in humility. You'll find wisdom in self-sacrifice. You'll find wisdom in loving your enemy. Completely countercultural to the world 2,000 years ago and the world today. Yet we see a Messiah who humbled himself to the point of death. On a cross. So my question, are you living in such a way that even reflects a glimpse of that? Are we living humble lives? Does humility define you? We see a Messiah who took sacrificial living to the ultimate depth, death. Are you living sacrificially? Do you put the needs of others ahead of your own? Or do you say, yeah, I'll sacrifice some of my stuff, but it's after I get where I'm going. It's after I get what I need. I'll I'll be willing to give some. I just need to reach these benchmarks first. But the reality is often those benchmarks continue to jump and jump and jump, never actually achieving the next one. Does your money Reflect this idea of self-sacrifice. Does your time do your talents? You see, wisdom comes in the self-sacrifice of yourself. And we see a Messiah who loved his enemies so much that he was willingly killed by them for them. Do you love your enemies? Do you love the classmate that openly hates God? Or that for some reason just doesn't like you? Republicans, do you love Democrats? Democrats, do you love Republicans? Do you love those that are different than you? As we walk through Corvallis, do we actually stop to talk to the person that's on the side of the street? Or do we just walk by saying, oh, somebody else will do that? Do we love the outsiders, the hard-hearted, the bitter? You see, Christ and his cross, that's where the power and wisdom of God is. That is the great reversal. It's ultimately through the gospel. So brothers and sisters, I urge you to not be ashamed of the gospel, For what the world thinks is folly, what the world thinks is foolish, we know it is life itself. It is the bread we eat. It is the water we drink. Yet I think for many of us in this room, we affirm the gospel. We affirm our life based on who Christ is. And yet when the world talks about the foolishness of the cross, we stay silent to their claims. I urge you, take joy and pride in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Proclaim it, because in it is wisdom. 
In it is wisdom that the world needs to see. Because in that wisdom is life. So my question for you guys, which wisdom do you prescribe to? Do you follow the wisdom of the world or the wisdom of God? And depending on how you answer that question, I believe will ultimately lead you into answering the second question that this text addresses. Who do you think you are? Let's pick up in verse 26. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you are wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. And God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us the wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Important to note, Paul starting this section with the word for uh, truly attaches us and is kind of an indicator that this paragraph is just a further argument of what he's been making, the statements that he's been, that he's been claiming. And so, so what is Paul ultimately saying within these first, this first verse, really? He's looking to the Corinthians and saying, do you, do you not remember who you were? Do you not remember who you were? It's like, if I remember right, you guys were not the ones that were wise according to the standards of the world. You were not powerful. You weren't even born of noble birth. Essentially, he's saying, do you not remember who you were? Because really, you, you were nobody. And this can sound pretty harsh, but again, within the great reversal of God and who he is, Paul actually reveals the beauty of that statement. Because in 27 to 29, again, he says, For God chose what is foolish of the world to shame the wise, and God chose what is weak of the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. See, Paul completely pushes back on the Corinthians' desire and ultimately our desire to be a someone. And if you're anything like me, those are desires that run through my life every single day. I strive to be a somebody, a somebody worth recognizing, a somebody worth knowing, a somebody worth following. These desires run rampant in our culture. I mean, heck, we live in a day and age where people are famous for being famous. Like, it doesn't even make any sense. Yet, those are the people we look to and strive after. The pursuit of notoriety is intoxicating. For many of us, I think social media controls our lives. It's finding what is that perfect shot I can get. That, oh, I just woke up out of bed after you put your makeup on for 30 minutes to a little hashtag no filter. 
You know, we are creating this environment in which we say, hey, I want to be somebody. I show the highlights of my life because that is what's worth showing. We strive to be somebody. We strive to get more followers. Even for me in school, I wanted to get good grades, but it wasn't always because I wanted to know the material, but because I wanted that four point because it would make me look good, because I would get accolades. The desire to be somebody. We live in a generation where we'll max out our credit cards to buy that next hot item, to buy that new iPhone, to buy a house, to buy the clothes that puts us into the style that we see the world wearing. To show that, hey, I am somebody. I'm worth it. Look, look at me. Look at what I'm wearing. Look at my apparel. Look at my house. Yeah, I've got the American dream. Or we jump from job to job to job, just trying to climb the corporate ladder to get to the top. Not even knowing where we want to go, we just know it's got to be up. And the beauty of this passage is Paul is lovingly saying, stop. Stop. This is not what God has designed you for. This is not God's design for life. We see God doesn't choose what the world expects. God chose what is foolish and weak and low. And I can guarantee you, if I, feel, if I had a survey out here today and I was like, hey, give me some characteristics of what you look for in your life, none of you would circle foolish, weak, and low. If you did, we can talk about it. That's amazing. I love it. But God actually chose the opposite of what we expect. And he's been doing this for all of history. God chose Abraham, a hundred-year-old pagan, to bear the son of promise and to make the nation of Israel. God chose Moses, a stuttering murderer, to take his people, Israel, out of the hand of Pharaoh, out of oppression. God chose Rahab, a prostitute, to protect his spies at Jericho as they fought for the promised land. God chose David, a little shepherd boy who his family didn't even think significant, to be king. And yet even as king, he was a man that was an adulterer, and killed that woman's husband. And yet God still said, this is a man that is pursuing my heart. God chose Esther, a beauty pageant winner, to save his people from genocide. God chose Jonah, a man who literally ran away from him, to bring his message of repentance and salvation to Nineveh. And lastly, God chose his one and only son, Jesus, to come to this earth. And not to come in glory, but to come in a virgin, in a little town, in the middle of nowhere, and ultimately in a manger. See, God chose Jesus to not ride into Jerusalem as an authority, as power, with a military or political force behind him. But rather, God chose him to ride on the back 
of a donkey with people yelling Hosanna in the streets with palm branches. You see, God chose Jesus to come to this world to be the wisdom and power of God and yet to be rejected by the very people he came to save. But again, God in his reversal, he said, even though you reject me, I still love you. Even though you reject me, I am still willing to die for you. And so he went to the cross, and he bore the sins of the world on his shoulders so that we can actually have life, that we can experience God anew, that we can experience the wisdom and power of God. You see, it is through Christ that we are redeemed, that we are sanctified, that we are made right, just as this passage proclaims. I love the words of N.T. Wright where he says, the Christian good news is about God dying on a rubbish heap at the wrong end of the empire. It's all about God babbling nonsense to a room full of philosophers. It's all about the true God confronting the world of posturing power and prestige and overthrowing it in order to set up his own kingdom, a kingdom in which the weak and the foolish find themselves just as welcome as the strong and the wise, if not more so. You see, God isn't looking for somebodies. Prestige and clout mean nothing before God. And why is that? In verses 19 through, I mean, in verses 29 through 31, it says, why is that? So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. Apart from Christ, we have no reason to boast. All that we are is because of Christ and Christ alone. Even the fact that we are Christ is because as this verse or as this chapter says that he called us to him, those that are called. James 1.17 says, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights who does not change like shifting shadows. Those things in which we boast about should not be directed at us, but should be directed to the one that actually gave them, to God himself. And as we truly realize who we are in Christ, we realize that we are no one apart from Christ. Yet in the great reversals of God, he's saying that when we realize that we are no one apart from Christ, we realize now that we are someone in Christ. A complete reversal, complete 180. And when we see who we are in Christ, we live out the reality of Galatians 2.20, where it says, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Then our boasting shifts from being focused on oneself 
to focused on Christ, the one in which I live. At the foot of the cross, the ground is level. There's, there's no hierarchy. God says, you might be the CEO of a Fortune 500 company, and you might be somebody that's been homeless your whole life. Come to me. You're welcome. See the rich and the poor, the strong and the weak, the sick and the healthy. They're all on equal ground before God. So I end with this question. Who will you boast in? I believe many of us are going to fall into one of three categories as we think of boasting in our life. There's going to be some of us that are the person that boasts, and kind of everybody knows it. Everybody can point to that person. Yet that person has a hard time seeing it because they can always say, oh, well, that person's more proud than I am. Like, I'm not as proud as that person. And so in that, minimizing our pride. Number two, there's the person that, that boasts, but ultimately they know what to say so that they can come across as not really being that proud. It's this sense of false humility where you're lifting yourself up but acting like you're humbling yourself at the same time. And number three, there's a person who doesn't really boast at all because they have a super low view of themselves. And they look at their life and they say, there's nothing in my life worth being proud of. There's nothing in my life that I'm going to hang my hat on. And each of these people need the gospel of Jesus Christ. For that first person, they need to see the holiness of Christ. They need to see who Christ is in all his glory. Just think about it this way. If you've lived in Corvallis your whole life and you've never gone outside of Corvallis, you would think that Mary's Peak is a pretty dope area, a pretty sweet spot to go where you can see for miles. Let's say one day I come to you and I'm like, dude, you've never left Corvallis. We got to get out of here. Take you up to Portland and we head to Mount Hood. And if we start climbing, not even to the top, but if we start climbing up a ways, you're going to see a whole different experience. And you're going to say, hey, yeah, Mary's Peak is cool. But look at Mount Hood. Like that is a mountain. And that's ultimately as we strive for the holiness of God, as we strive to see God as this ultimate image worthy of boasting in, it's us realizing the where Mary's peak, if that, we might even be Bald Hill. <laughs> and, and God's actually more like Mount Fuji or Mount Everest. Like that. And that's a small comparison in the reality of who we are compared to who God is. And the second person, they need to see the humility of Christ. Again, that Christ was the one that humbled himself to the point of death on a cross. Your own pride needs to be exposed. So therefore, surround yourself with people that are humble. 
Because when you surround yourself by people that are humble, you naturally see the pride in your life. And surround yourself with the words of Jesus Christ. Surround yourself in Scripture. For as you see Jesus and the life he lived, you cannot help but be humbled by the life that you live. And lastly, the third person. They need to see their identity in Christ. That Christ died for you. You might not think you're worth anything, but God thinks you are worth anything everything. So much so that he sent his son to die for you. We need to see the beauty of the gospel. See the beauty of the words of 2 Corinthians 5, 17 that says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. In Christ, you are a new creation. And it is through Christ that you can boast of who God is in your life. He has transformed you. He has taken you from death to life. That is something that we rejoice in. Look at the identity that Christ has given you. When it comes to these three categories, where we fall short and why we need to see the gospel, is because... In our folly, in our boasting, we're ultimately looking at ourselves. We're staring in the mirror, and all we see is us. We don't see the reality that actually standing in the mirror as a follower of Christ, we look, Christ is what reflects onto us. Ultimately, it's not about me. It's not about us. But it's about somebody else. It's about Christ. Let's pray. Lord God, we praise you for who you are. We praise you that you loved us to the point of death. And God, we praise you that you walk with us through life. You walk with us through the ups and downs where we strive for knowledge and wisdom that has nothing to do with you. And we pursue trying to be somebody even at the expense of being with you. And even in the midst of that, all that you knew, Lord, you died for us that we may have life. God, may we shift our gaze. May we look at you and Lord, ultimately, when we look in the mirror, may we see you as our reflection. In your name, amen.